0: Welcome to another episode of Murder and Mixology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first episode of our first season of Murder and Mixology. I'm Ray Johnson. First of all, the, the reason we chose the name Murder and Mixology, it might seem kind of strange to, to people... When they first hear it it's just that being a, a former detective i do know that uh there has been more than one case that has been solved or at least redirected uh after a few after shift drinks during those times when the egos are checked and you're just relaxing that uh that the cases tend to uh, kind of come together and one of the reasons i'm excited about about this season our first season is that we're covering a crime that uh, is very personal to both uh, myself and Tiff. And uh, it's the murders of the Chicago's Grime sisters.
1: Both Ray and I are Chicago natives and grew up in areas not too far from where this murder happened. And um, so it's a really personal story. And it's also what brought Ray and I together as friends.
0: Right. Exactly. So um, if you're from Chicago, the um, the murder of the Grimes sisters is something that everyone's familiar with. Um, uh, it's pretty much a legend within police departments. And, and still- it's also
1: one of the country's oldest cold cases to date. It's one of the most infamous, but also, you know, I think anyone who's a detective, especially in Chicago, has heard of the Grimes sisters because it remains unsolved.
0: Exactly. And, uh, and, it, it, and, and you're right, it is one of the oldest uh, cold cases that we believe can still be solved um, through the help of uh, the listeners, actually.
1: And I met Ray on a show that I was working on where Ray was um, brought in to be one of the experts. And while we were hanging around waiting for things to happen during filming, Ray started telling me about this incredible murder story of the Grimes sisters. And from then on, we just couldn't stop talking about it and trying to figure it out. And uh, we spent many nights doing the same thing with a cocktail in hand, trying to figure out what happened that night with the Grimes sisters.
0: Right. And sometimes it helped and sometimes it didn't, <laughs> to tell you the <laughs> truth. But, um,
1: so, you know. so what the plan is, is that with every episode we do, we will choose a cocktail that is somehow related, whether it's geographically or it has something to do with the story. Um, we will find a cocktail that connects to that moment in time and weave it into not only our bellies, but into the story that we're telling.
0: Okay, with that being said, uh, Tiff, I've been waiting, so let's uh, let's get to uh, this episode's cocktail.
1: I'm going to tell you a little bit about why we chose tonight's cocktail. Everyone who's ever read a detective novel or seen a film about a cop knows that investigating a murder and having a stiff drink go hand in hand. From Humphrey Bogart as Sam Spade in The Maltese Falcon to Mel Gibson's hot mess detective rigs in Lethal Weapon, the image of a detective ending a long, hard day with a swig is as familiar in our minds as the smell of popcorn is at the movies. In my career as a true crime producer, I personally have firsthand knowledge of how the after-work wind-down of many hard-working homicide detectives is as much a part of the job as putting on the gun and badge each morning. Uh, I- I'm not implying that cops are boozers, but it's a natural relief
0: yeah, I was going to say, what, what are you trying to say?
1: <laughs> but it is. It's a natural relief from a day filled with murder, grief, and dead bodies. And let's face it, a lot of times those cops get together after work, and they put their <clears throat> notes together, and they come up with leads. But as much of the character of these detectives, fictional or real, can be seen from their choice of cocktail. Nope, no frozen blue drink served with a tiny straw and a strawberry garnish here. Hard-boiled detectives drink classic drinks strong ones without a fuss. Most of the fictional cops we love drank them in a seedy dark dive bar or an old school cocktail lounge found on the side of an old steakhouse. In real life, as Ray and I have both seen frequently, often the drink comes from the lower left desk drawer. So when Ray and I decided to do a podcast, we thought of the many, many nights that we had a few old fashions at my house, because Ray is really good at making an old fashioned
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: And and we spent hours deciphering a case or breaking down a timeline in hopes of solving a murder. I mean, after all, we would be in very good company doing so. Raymond Chandler's detective Philip Marlowe was an avid drinker. He always kept an office bottle of Old Forester bourbon. I reached down and put the bottle of Old Forester on the desk. It was about a third full. Hmm. I feel like my Marlowe, yeah.
0: I was going <laughs> to say that was really good, Philip Marlowe.
1: I'm 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 channeling him hmm. as he was in sure. the novel, little okay. sister. All right, all right. And, of course, we have Bond, James Bond, <laughs> James with the slogan we never get tired of saying. Ugh. Say it with me, right?
0: Shaken, not, not stirred. That was my and Sean Connery. Fal- Do you like my Sean Connery?
1: Yeah, your Sean Connery is pretty uh, good, actually. Uh, it's
0: actually Daryl Hammond, Sean Connery. but.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and in the Maltese Falcon, Dashiell Hammett's private detective, Sam Spade, well, he was a whiskey guy. As long as there are crime writers or movies about murder, or real-life murder for that matter, there will be (coughs) detectives with a penchant for booze. Being a detective is a tough job. Sometimes you just need to go into a bar and say, give me a bourbon and leave the bottle. But honestly, I don't think there's any story in existence that will make you want a cocktail more than Dashiell Hammett's The Thin Man. This is one of Hammett's fantastic detective stories. It was written in the 1930s with all of the glamour of the post-Prohibition cocktail era. And it tells the story of Nick, a retired detective, and Nora, his wife. Together, they solve crimes and make drinks, kind of like we're doing tonight, right? Mm-hmm. And this crime solving, fast talking duo were rarely without a glass in hand. Actually, literally every character in this book drinks constantly from breakfast cocktails until 3 a.m. nightcaps. The characters are just mixing numerous unnamed cocktails and drinking them till all hours of the morning constantly. You'll love it. Um, So that brings us to tonight's Murder and Mixology cocktail.
0: Yes, that's what I've been waiting for.
1: It's the Nick and Nora Martini. So I'm just going to tell you a little thing. This cocktail became so popular during the reign of the popularity of these films that there was actually a special glass that they drank out of, which had sort of never been seen before, somewhere between um, a champagne coop glass and a regular martini glass and it was just enough to hold a few sips of the perfect Nick and Nora martini and it became really popular today you can even go to any uh, store that sells dishware and ask them and they'll probably be able to point you to the Nick and Nora martini glass hmm. so you ready to make a martini
0: yeah but I'm cheating I'm just using a regular martini glass <laughs> well, I, I didn't know there was a Nick and Nora glass so sorry there is full and disclosure you can see a
1: picture of it on our website anyone who's listening
0: all right Let's sure. do this thing.
1: I'm drinking mine out of a, a pseudo Nick and Nora martini glass. It's a glass that I found at a vintage cocktailware store here in the lower, in the West Village of Manhattan. And it's an all metal, um, small drinking glass so that it keeps the cocktail cold.
0: Right. We should have mentioned that you're actually in New York right now.
1: That's right. And I'm We are doing so. our first podcast from two of the greatest cities in the United in the world, basically Chicago and New York,
0: All right, with Chicago being the best, of course.
1: Uh, well, New York has better pizza.
0: Hmm. That, <laughs> okay, a, that, that's a whole other episode. That's that's a different podcast altogether. But we don't okay, have to. Okay, so we don't have to who fight.
1: wants to know about the Nick and Nora Martini? So. We will post the ingredients and name the cocktail in advance and you'll be able to find it on the Murder and Mixology Facebook page or on our Instagram, uh, which at the end of this podcast will tell you where to find those. And um, that way you can have a drink with us and play along. The Nicanor Martini is similar to the traditional martini, which is gin, dry vermouth and orange bitters. But this drink is modeled after what the characters drank in the book of The Thin Man. And it's a dry London gin. A very good French dry vermouth, and you top it off with an olive, specifically no pimentos for the garnish. Awesome. So it's one and a half ounces of dry London gin and a half ounce of dry vermouth that you're going to pour into right. a shaker. I'm, over I'm ice doing
0: ice that. In. I'm doing that right now. So it's an okay. so ounce and a half. of ice. Okay. Got it.
1: One and a half ounces of dry London gin. All right. Stand by. A half ounce of dry vermouth and shake it. Here's what's interesting. Uh, in the book, it talks about how there's a, there's a very famous line. Actually, I actually think it's from the movie that Nick is instructing the bartender how to shake his drink. Mm-hmm. And he says that you shake it to the beat of a good waltz.
0: Which is so there what? You go, Which is what? One, two, three. One, two three. All right, hold, on. hold on. One, two, three. One, two, three
1: a Little off step, but okay,
0: <laughs> all right, it's a little off step. Uh, I'm not no, much of a dancer.
1: Noteworthy aside, uh, Nick and Nora shook their martinis just like James Bond.
0: Oh, okay, all right, and then I've got the olives without the pimentos. I'm putting those olives in right without now,
1: pimentos right? I'm not sure,
0: I'm not sure wait, why. Why did they, why Spanish did they, leave olives? The, I they are Spanish olives, okay? They're not black. Well, olives. I mean,
1: I imagine that a pimento might change the. Change the flavor of the vermouth because pimentos can right. have like sort of a pickled flavor to them, I guess.
0: Mm, I don't know. Well, I I I'm just following directions. So I took out the pimentos and they're in there now. So
1: Okay. Mine didn't come with pimentos, but mine have pits.
0: Well, that's um I'm not a martini guy, but uh it's very tasty. I must say. Well,
1: but you are a retired detective, so you are a stiff drink man, right?
0: No, but uh well. You know, full disclosure, I I have to say I'm I, I do like the foofy, fuzzy, tropical drinks too. Sorry, no, But, yeah, I do, I do. I haven't well, told honestly, I haven't told a lot of people about that, but but and I'm not proud of it. But I um,
1: think I've only ever seen you drink bourbon and old fashions, and now this martini. So, well, uh, you could fully expect that the first time I see you drinking a cocktail with a umbrella, that I will make fun of you. Well, so you know. and
0: probably take a picture. So.
1: Oh definitely take a picture. Yes. So watch for it on the on the gram, you
0: guys. All right. Well that is the the first uh cocktail of our first episode of our first season of Murder and Mixology. So now on to the the more serious um side of why we're here, and that yeah. is um the murder of, of um the Chicago Grime sisters and uh and without further ado we'll we'll get into the uh the background of the story. Chicago has long been infamous for its crime and corruption. After all, it was founded on both. What is now known as the Great City of Chicago started out in December of 1803 as a military outpost near the intersection of Lake Michigan and the Chicago River. Thirty-four years before Chicago was even incorporated as a city, there were 73 families living there. Sixty-nine of those families were military stationed at Fort Dearborn and only four were civilian families. One of those families was the Kinsey family. Ironically, its patriarch, John Kinsey, who has a city street named after him, was also Chicago's first murderer. Nearly 220 years since that first murder, and today Chicago is the murder capital of the US. Chicago police reported 769 murders in 2020, and that is more than a 50% increase from the previous year. By comparison, New York City, which is four times the population of Chicago, reported only 447 murders. Chicago is one quarter of New York's population with almost twice the number of murders. So with all those murders to choose from over the last 220 years, we chose to open our first season of murder and mixology with the still unsolved murders of sisters Barbara and Patricia Grimes. Growing up in the Chicago area, I had always known about the Grimes case. I remember every once in a while my parents would mention the case since they were the same ages as the girls when they went missing. It really wasn't until I was a police officer that I truly understand how big this case was. It was a legend among officers in both the city and suburbs and is still talked about over lunch breaks and after shift social gatherings. This was the one case that forever changed the way parents interacted with their children. This was the case that caused every responsible parent in the city of Chicago to tell their children to be home before the streetlights came on. It wasn't until after I left police work that I had the time to really dig a little deeper into it. Over the last 11 years, it has really been an investigative roller coaster of twists and turns. I've had the opportunity to speak with and get to know relatives of the girls, classmates, friends, investigators who actually worked the case, as well as witnesses who have come forward finally after many years with information that could ultimately help solve the case. I've also been able to uncover many reasons why this case has remained unsolved to this day. It started to become clear to me that there were forces at work behind the scenes that were working against the family and those seeking justice. This is what we will be discussing in future episodes, and by sharing this information with listeners, and listeners being actively engaged in the process, our ultimate goal is to bring closure to a family that still desperately needs it. In order to begin to understand the case, it's important to have some background, and we have to transport ourselves back to Chicago in 1956. Chicago has long been known as a City of Neighborhoods, Each neighborhood has its own unique flavor and history, and at last count, Chicago has 178 of them. Our story centers around one neighborhood in particular, the neighborhood of McKinley Park. The McKinley Park neighborhood is in the geographic center of the city of Chicago, just southwest of the Chicago Loop. The McKinley Park of 1956 was solidly Irish American, solidly blue-collar, and solidly Catholic. In fact, you were much more likely at the time to identify where you lived by what parish you are a member of, than the name of your street, or even the name of your neighborhood. Everybody knew everybody on your city block, and as a kid, if you did something wrong, the news of your mischief would make it back to your parents faster than your little feet could get you home. The church was the cornerstone of everyday life. People tolerated the politics and feared but respected both the mob and the police but for different reasons. The Grimes family lived in a single-family home at 3634 South Damon Avenue. Joe Grimes, a truck driver, and his wife Loretta had separated roughly eight years prior, and Loretta was left alone to raise four children on the first floor of the home. She also had two adult children. One, Leona Freck, a married mother of one boy, had died two years prior, and the other was 30-year-old Shirley Wojcik. It's tough being a single parent, especially in an era when the vast majority of homes had two parents. Loretta Grimes was an adoring mother, but tough as nails, and always worked multiple jobs in order to support her family, and at the time was working as a clerk for Park Davis Pharmaceuticals. All the kids pitched in to help around the home, and those old enough to work outside the home did. The Grimes family's lives would change forever on Friday, December 28, 1956. The memories of opening Christmas presents were only a couple of days old, and all the Chicago schools were still on Christmas break and would be until after the New Year. It was about a quarter after six, and most of the Grimes family was sitting down to dinner. Barbara and Patricia's older sister, Teresa, who was 17 at the time, was still at work at her job at Wolf Furniture. Barbara, 15, and a sophomore at Thomas Kelly High School, took a look at the dinner table and exclaimed, I am so hungry, and you made all my favorite foods. Loretta had made open-faced tuna fish salad sandwiches on toast with a side of mashed russet and sweet potatoes. Patricia, known as Petey to family and close friends, was just three days from her 14th birthday and a 7th grader at St. Morris Catholic Grammar School. She didn't want to make it obvious, but she definitely was not as hungry as Barbara. It seemed her younger brother Jimmy, who was 12, had found $10 lying on the sidewalk earlier that day and invited Patricia out for a secret banana split at Candyland, the local ice cream and soda shop. As they were finishing up, Barbara looked at her mom and asked, Mama, can we see the show tonight? Loretta was still a little bit upset about the girls getting home late the night before and had threatened not to let them go to the show tonight. Loretta asked, Do you really feel like going to the show tonight? The temperature had already dropped to 14 degrees and with the wind chill felt like it was in the single digits. She also knew that Barbara was just getting over a cold and was still taking cough medicine. Barbara started tapping on her mother's shoulder. Oh, Mama, please can we go? Oh, all right, Loretta said, as long as you take your sister. Now, both Barbara and Patricia were like every other teenage girl at the time. They were crazy about Elvis Presley and his first movie, Love Me Tender, which was playing at the Brighton Theater. The Brighton was a popular place for teenagers to get together on a Friday or Saturday night and was a 15-minute trip by bus straight southwest on Archer Avenue. Patricia exclaimed that she just needed to quickly change clothes before they left. Their mother only gave them a total of $2.15 between the two of them, just enough for round-trip bus fare and movie tickets. Loretta kissed them both goodbye, and they both left the house around 7.15 p.m. As they walked toward the bus stop at Archer Avenue and 35th Street, their close friend and neighbor, Sandra Bauer, waved to them through her front window. She so wanted to go with them to the show, but her parents had said that at 12 years of age, she was just too young to go to the late show without an adult. A few hours later, shortly after 10.30 p.m., Loretta sent Teresa and their 14-year-old brother Joey to the bus stop to meet the girls as they should be arriving at the stop sometime around 11 p.m. Jimmy, the youngest, was already fast asleep. Teresa and Joey bundled up and walked three blocks to the stop and waited in the dark and biting cold for the girls' bus to arrive. When the first bus arrived, several young girls got off the bus, probably coming back from the same show, but not Barbara and Patricia. They waited for several other buses in 10-minute intervals, but their sisters never got off any of them. They quickly made their way home to report back to their mother, and on the way, Joey spotted a policeman walking down the sidewalk. Joey ran up to him and nervously explained why they were concerned. The officer told him that his sisters were probably just out on a date and would eventually find their way home and that they should go home and wait for them. When Teresa and Joey came home alone, Loretta knew instinctively that something was wrong. Joey told her how he had talked to a policeman. Loretta immediately called on every friend and neighbor who knew the girls and nobody had seen them. Shortly after 2 a.m., Loretta made the official police report concerning her missing girls. The girls' names and description were shared with that shift and the incoming day shift a few hours later. Everyone was sure the girls were just out with boys or girlfriends and would eventually come home. Everyone that was, except for Lurie Grimes. Since school was still on Christmas break, the news of the girls not coming home did not spread quite as quickly as it probably should have. Jimmy found out about his sisters when he woke up that morning and vividly remembers the tense quiet in the house in the days that followed. As days went by, the police started to take the report more seriously. On Monday, December 31st, the first newspaper article appeared in the Chicago Tribune on page 6. Young girls reported seen in two places, the title read. It also had a picture of both girls. Shortly after that, Elvis Presley himself learned that the girls had gone missing after seeing his movie. In his statement, he said that if the girls were good Elvis fans, they would go home to their mother. Now, once Elvis was involved, it was instantly national news. Reports were coming in from all over regarding people seeing the girls. The police, aided by the Chicago Tribune, put out a full-color page showing a drawing of what the girls were wearing the night they went missing. A special local task force was put together that was dedicated solely to finding the missing girls. Chicago PD, the Cook County Sheriff's Office, as well as all of the surrounding suburbs were involved, and to this day remains the most number of man-hours ever spent on a missing persons case in Chicago history. Reports of sightings of the girls were coming in from as far as Memphis, Tennessee. It was pushing the resources of the Chicago PD to its limits. It wasn't as if nobody had seen the girls, it was as if everyone had seen them. The tips numbered into the tens of thousands, and the police had to follow up on every one. Unbeknownst to the public, the FBI was also involved due to Loretta receiving multiple ransom notes from persons claiming to have the girls. Unfortunately, all of them turned out to be hoaxes. Loretta had not slept in bed since the girls went missing, but instead slept on the couch next to a window where a single light burned around the clock. then, on an unusually warm day, on Tuesday, January 22, 1957, almost a month after the girls had disappeared, a man named Leonard Prescott was driving eastbound on German Church Road from County Line Road. He was headed to the grocery store. He looked to his left and saw what he later described as two clothing store mannequins lying on the north side of the shoulder of German Church Road, only about 250 feet east of the DuPage County-Cook County Line. He then circled around back to his home at 87th Street and County Line Road in Hinsdale to pick up his wife, Marie, before he took a closer look. The Prescotts pulled up to the scene. As they walked closer, they both realized that these were the nude bodies of what appeared to be two young girls. They jumped back into the car and drove a short distance to the Willow Springs Police Department and at 1.35 p.m. reported what they had seen. A Willow Springs officer arrived and notified the Cook County Coroner's office. Harry Gloss, the chief investigator of the Cook County Coroner's office, arrived and the Grimes family was notified. Barbara and Patricia's father showed up at the scene and immediately lost all strength in his legs. He broke down as he fell to the ground and had to be helped back up to his feet by nearby officers. He sobbed. I tried to tell the police that my girls did not run away, and they wouldn't listen to me. Mrs. Grimes heard the news as she was headed to church at St. Morris my poor babies why couldn't they have taken me and let my babies live this was no longer a missing persons case the nationwide hunt for the girls was over the hunt for their killer however had just begun
1: So I'm going to back up a little bit and talk about after Ray and I met and we started talking about this case, it has this infectious nature that, you know, Mrs. Grimes went to her grave without knowing who killed her lovely daughters. And Ray, who's so committed to getting answers for the Grimes family, I became completely enrolled in that process too. And we realized very quickly that the way that this case was going to be solved is that there were a lot of people that lived there that were friends with the Grimes sisters that were in the neighborhood and that the answers were there. The answers were there with those people. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and we decided, you know, I'm a filmmaker by nature. I'm a documentarian. So Ray and I scrambled and we figured out we just have to start filming and we bought a couple of cameras and some lighting equipment and some sound equipment. And Ray got on the phone and started calling people. And we just decided we're going to go out and we're going to start filming this documentary and we're going to keep going until Mr. Grimes has some answers. And I mean, it's hilarious, you guys. It was doing the work of a 10 person crew, just me and Ray, unloading the gear. Setting up two or three lights, I'd be running around from one camera to another while Ray's entertaining the people we're talking to until we could finally sit down and just have these real, authentic conversations with people that may know something about who killed Barbara and Patricia <clears throat> Grimes.
0: Right, absolutely, absolutely, and it, and it it becomes very na I mean, it seems very unnatural when you're when you're dragging equipment around and stuff like that. But um, you know, when we were were filming um, with one of the pallbearers and, and another friend of the girls over at the uh mckinley park american legion so we did meet a lot of people that night who who yeah knew exactly what we're i mean it was it was amazing it was like i
1: mean know. it's sort of that kind of case that every time we would go and talk to somebody who lived in the neighborhood and knew the story and knew the Grimes sisters there would be another piece of the puzzle and then ray and i would walk away and go Oh my gosh, she said this and that fits with that. And little by little, these pieces started to come together. And over the course of this season, you guys will not only learn intimate and never before her never before details of the Grimes case, but you'll hear interviews and statements and pieces of the story that we've gathered along the way from people who have never, ever spoken out about the Grimes murders before.
0: Right. Right. And, and, I mean, I mean, there's so many, and, and everyone will, you know, eventually as we, that's, I mean, this case is so involved and that's why this is not just like a simple one-off kind of podcast thing. Um, I mean, it took, I mean, you remember Tiff, how, how long it took me to even catch you up to like where I was uh, in, in looking at the case and just how many twists and turns it's taken and how many. How many witnesses have come forward, even, even you know, recently, even before, I mean, right before we started talking about the podcast, people were coming forward. So, and we're and when, actually...
1: When Ray, when Ray and I started working on this together, I was living in Chicago as well. And I had um, this really cool loft in the West Loop with this giant empty wall. And I, there were so many times, remember way when I'd be like, wait, who is that again? What was her name? Because there's just so many, there were so many players and so many... Different stories that lead to different answers in this tale. And so we started building what I call um, our Carry from Homeland wall. So it was like the whole wall of pictures and documents and pieces of newspaper so that we could stand back and start putting those pieces. I mean, the murder wall is real. No, it is. Here. No, like, I, I was out. Yeah.
0: exactly. I was kind of shocked in the beginning. I was like, you know, kind of like, well, are we just doing this for effect? And I'm like, no, actually when you start putting these, these names and people's photographs and you start, because it, we actually needed that in order to be able to like, keep everything straight. Yeah. And and, and, and
1: we will post pictures of it. Um, I have pictures of it that we'll put on the Facebook page on Instagram. So you guys can see, um, I've since moved back to New York just for work, but the murder wall is here with me in a box and someday Ray and I will have enough momentum that we'll be able to put it back up and follow all the leads that hopefully some people listening might be able to tip us off to.
0: Right. Absolutely. So not, not, I mean, not necessarily the tease for future episodes, but, but again, this is not a one-off podcast. There's just too much. It's, it's, I mean, There, there, there can be a whole episode just on one particular person involved in the case. So, um, and and even
1: if you don't, even if you didn't know about the Grimes sisters' murder before, or if you did, um, this is one of those cases where you sort of have to play out the multiple roads that could be the could lead to the possible answers because there are so many twists and turns, and so many layers, and so many red herrings and different people's opinions and point of view about what happened or who could have been a suspect and so many mistakes made in the investigation whether they were mistakes or cover-ups mm-hmm. we will soon find out yeah I was gonna um, I was
0: gonna say were they mistakes really yeah. I mean, yeah were they
1: mistakes um that it in in a sad sort of way makes sense that this case was never solved and it, and as Ray says it wasn't solved because they didn't have the answers. It wasn't solved because somebody didn't want it to be solved.
0: That is correct. And we will get into that. um, Yeah, definitely.
1: So, when Ray and I decided that we were going to not only investigate this crime, but make a documentary while we were doing it, we figured that the best place to start would be with Jim Grimes, who is the surviving brother of Barbara and Patricia Grimes. Um, how old was Jim when this happened, Ray?
0: Uh, he was 11, and uh, oh. he is very much um, a partner in this venture. So he is, very he much. is yes.
1: And his wife.
0: Linda, yes. Yes.
1: Sorry, let me say that again. And his wife, Linda. Um, so to say that we're doing it for them would sort of be an understatement. We're doing it for them. We're doing it to solve a mystery. We're doing it to hopefully be able to uncover something that can help the authorities put a name to the person who murdered Barbara and Patricia Grimes. But we the f- first day of filming, we decided we th- The first day of filming, we had our cameras and um, I had an old friend who's a cameraman who does a lot of crime and unscripted television show. And I had him fly from New York and come to Chicago to work with us because we wanted to make sure that everything was perfect when we were interviewing Jim Grimes. And we went to Jim and Linda's house and we spent some time talking to them and we set up lights and we got the cameras ready. And Ray and Jim engaged in a conversation, um, where, Not only did we hear from Jim's point of view the entire story of his sisters, but intimate details about what happened the night they went missing and what he remembers. And, and to meet somebody like Jim, who at 11 years old had this very tragic thing happen within their family, but it stayed with him to this day. It's as real as yesterday. And we, you know, We were, again, a small crew. I'm operating one of the cameras. Jay is on one of the other cameras, on the other camera. And we're just listening to these two people talk and listening to Jim's story. And it was sort of the moment that cemented all of us to committing to doing something and felt like this was supposed to happen (laughs) this is why I met Ray this is why we're here is that we're going to do this story and I didn't say any of that out loud and we finished the interview we said goodbye to Jim and Linda we got in the car and this very seasoned, sort of really very New York cameraman that we're working with sits back in the seat and goes this is why we do what we do when we left that interview, because it was just so profound to hear Jim Grimes tell his story and to talk about his sisters in the way that we were privileged to be able to cover that day.
0: Right. And I'm actually getting emotional now. So, and you know how my, I mean, you, you being a a documentarian and director and producer, um, you know how we've had to cut, cut out a lot of the stuff that I've, Done when I'd start to to break down and and you know when when yeah,
1: crying is good crying no, is when it's when when
0: yeah, but when Jay said that it was it was and and what and and I remember what Jim Grimes said like one one thing that i you know because it was very raw, it was very real and um and I remember one you know one thing that really really stuck out to me when Jim was talking and and i think it was you that posed the question to him and you said what you know if 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 someone is alive today that knows something mm-hmm. about the case or was involved in some way um what would you say to them and, yeah. I, re- and I remember that was a question you asked and 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 forever i'll remember his answer and 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 maybe you know who knows in a future episode we might we might actually play um, we may do that but You know, play obviously parts of that interview. Um, but he said that I hope if if someone out there knows something that they would come forward or spend eternity in hell. Yep. And that I mean that came that would I mean it was you could hear a pin drop. Totally.
1: I remember that it was the cameras were rolling and we were all standing there and it's sort of like after that, what is there left to be said, Um, you know? So on that note, we know that there are listeners out there. Maybe, you know, somebody, maybe your mom knows somebody, maybe your uncle lived in the neighborhood. I mean, the whole point of all of this for us is, is not, is to not let the Grimes sisters murders go unanswered and it's it, that somebody out there knows something somebody out there has that one piece of the puzzle that's gonna help have us gather enough evidence that this case can be solved
0: right and we're going to be putting a lot of information out there so there's if, yeah. if if the one thing that I always hear from people and and you can you can relate to this Tiff is that is that you always hear someone say well I don't know much about it. Yeah. You, know, yeah, you know, you'd know, you be asking, you know, well, you were around in the neighborhood and, and, and they'd be like, well, I don't really know a lot about it or whatever. Uh, right. but, but the minutest detail about a story that someone...
1: How many times has that happened to us where we heard one person say one piece of the puzzle and then we go talk to someone else and they think that it's an insignificant piece of information. But as soon as they say it, you and I are the the wheels are clicking in our head. Oh my gosh, that's the same thing that the other guy said. And that means this, and you know, the car that they're mentioning is the same car that we heard from someone else. So like it's these little pieces of the puzzle. And I've worked on enough true crime shows and spent a lot of time with homicide detectives. I've done a lot of, unsolved, unadjudicated murder cases where we're sort of following along with detectives real time and it's those little things that they look for. It's the little statements that somebody thinks is a throwaway piece of information. They might interview somebody for 30 minutes and the last thing the person says is, yeah, all I remember is that they were wearing a jean jacket. And that is the answer that they needed because it corroborates something corroborate. That is the answer that they needed. (laughs) 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 <laughs> I don't even know how to say the word. When
0: corroborates? Cor- cor- yeah. Yes,
1: that is the one detail that they needed that corroborates something they heard from somebody else. So if you know anything, you've heard anything, maybe your mom used to tell some stories or your dad used to talk after he had a couple of Budweiser's. But just tell us whatever it is that right. you think you might right. know.
0: And it's definitely this is definitely not a tease, I, I swear. But there's just so much information. You cannot put it out in one episode and that's why in the first episode I just wanted I just wanted to cover what happened that night and there's so much to unpack even in that one night but we as we go along uh, the listeners out there are going to hear stories from people they're going to hear interviews they're going to hear they're going to hear information that I'm sure a lot of people have not heard yet um. So those little bits of information can also spark memories and say, "Well, wait a second. You know, that's not what I understood, or, or that this is what I heard, or, or my gosh, this is what I did here," and that kind of, you know, cements something that that right. I remember that I didn't really think was important at the time, right? Um, or
1: something that your a relative said to you about it that you didn't think was important at the right, time, right? And I just want to set up one thing. So you know, Chicago is known for its corrupt politics. It's known for the mob. It's known for a lot of things that are underhanded and not always on the up and up. And I think that not that I'm relating any of those things, but at the time that this happened, there seems to be a running theme that we've heard that a lot of people were scared to talk and scared to come out with what they knew. About Absolutely. Order. Cause you'd be a and, suspect. Yeah. They'd be a suspect or they would you know, we're, we're both, from Chicago, you know, nobody wants to be the rat. Nobody wants to to say something that's going to get somebody else in trouble. And what we've heard from a few people, which you guys will hear during the course of the season is people that back then they didn't have the, the, courage to talk they were scared or they thought that what they knew was insignificant and now they're willing to talk or they're telling us something that they still think means nothing but it really does have an impact on us trying to put together this giant puzzle that we're trying to put together so but it's really interesting that back in the day they might have been threatened they might have had a reason that they shouldn't talk they might have thought talking was going to get them in trouble. And now, you know, people have aged, they've had their lives, they're looking towards making peace with things, and they are willing to talk to us and tell us things that hopefully will um, help us get closure for Jim and Teresa Grimes. Absolutely. So during the course of listening to this podcast over this season, we're fortunate enough to be able to reveal to you and tell you about things that we've learned about the case that have probably never been exposed before.
0: Right, exactly. And, and one of those things, and it's not a minor thing, is that um, if you look at what's online or what's been written about the case or the newspaper articles, um, everyone knows that the girls made it to the movie. Um, based on Dorothy Weinert, and you're going to learn more about her in future episodes. Um, right. And
1: mul- multiple witnesses say that they
0: made it to the movie theater. Um, what you don't hear is that nobody knows what happened after the movies, supposedly. Wow. Well, supposedly. You
1: know, there, there are several stories about when they left and what happened after the movie theater and if people saw them or not. Um, But really, technically, as far as the police report goes, the girls made it to the movies and they didn't make it home.
0: Exactly. And there's
1: nothing in between.
0: Right. And I'm telling you right now, not you, Tiff, (laughs) but the people listening, (laughs) is that, you know, but we we have at least two witnesses now that that actually had seen what happened after the movie. And and that's not a tease. It's just that we don't have the time to get into all of it now, um, right. but that we do have that information, and that hopefully it is a
1: tease. We want you to come. Well, back. it is a
0: tease. We do. I mean, okay, let's be honest. It is kind of a tease. Yeah, but but the tease. reason it's a tease is that we want people to listen. I mean, that's always yeah. been. You know, whether I was doing a library talk or or whatever it was, as long as we keep this case in the public well, I was gonna say in the public eye, but since it's a podcast, I'll say the public ear, um, that more and more people come forward, uh, and that uh, we're gonna get the the last piece of the puzzle that we need. We, we, we I, I am confident that based on the information that we currently have and that we will be presenting over the next so many weeks to get this information out, that between what we have and what the listeners provide, I, I truly believe that we can bring bring closer, closure to the case. And whether that means that the bad guy will be arrested or... or Even means if the
1: bad guy is still alive?
0: It, well, I mean, it, it's yeah. a possibility, and, and that's yeah. one of the theories, and that's what we'll get into. Um, um, and
1: really, listen, you know, honestly... If the person is alive, if the person is dead, that's not really the point. The point would be is to be able to have the authorities close the case file, have the Grimes family have closure, knowing what happened that night. It's not even I mean, I'm sure it is, but to Mr. Grimes, but it's it's. There's more to a mis- there's more of a mystery here than who did it but what happened what happened after the theater where did they go how did how did they end up way out on German church Road? why did they have no clothes on? why were the bottom of their feet not dirty? I mean right. there are just so right. many questions that bring up different theories and different ways that this could have happened and ultimately we would like all of you listening and all of us to be able to figure that story out so that Jim Grimes and Teresa Grimes have some answers.
0: Absolutely. And And, uh, and
1: we encourage you to DM us on Instagram, DM us in Facebook, ask questions. What are the things you want to know? Tell us things that you know, or that you think you know, or that you've heard, or, you know, point us in directions that you think we should be looking. This is, you know, an unscripted, long look at, how we can all get to some answers. So you're as much a part of this as we are. And we really encourage the armchair detectives out there, the web sleuths out there to help us, help us get to the answers. Absolutely. The next cocktail we're going to do is the Chicago Martini. And I will post the recipe on our murder and mixology Instagram page. And I look forward to hearing from you guys then.
0: Absolutely. So goodbye from Chicago, from Ray
1: and And goodbye from New York, from TIFF.
0: All right. Until next time on Murder and Mixology. Bottoms up.